Ohio has not executed a prisoner since July 2018, six months before Governor Mike DeWine took office. There have been many problems with the state's lethal injection method, including difficulty obtaining lethal injection drugs. Now, some state lawmakers and the Attorney General want Ohio to use nitrogen gas after it was used to kill a death row inmate in Alabama. This, as calls to abolish the death penalty, had been gaining bipartisan traction here. Welcome to the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. We'll look at the future of capital punishment and other big stories this week. Cleveland City Council will not consider a resolution calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. But its only Jewish member, Rebecca Moore, did so on her own at the end of this week's meeting. Tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of the toxic train derailment in East Palestine. Cleveland's mayor wants to cut unfilled police jobs. And a task force on school bus safety does not recommend seatbelts. First, the news. It's the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable from IdeaStream Public Media. I'm Mike McIntyre. Thank you so much for joining us. Ohio hasn't put an inmate to death since 2018, and momentum seemed to be building for abolition of capital punishment. But a successful execution in Alabama using nitrogen gas has prompted calls for Ohio to adopt the method, a possible alternative to lethal injection, where the state says necessary drugs have proved difficult to obtain. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb wants to bolster numbers on the police force by cutting open police force positions from the budget? It's a long-term play. The mayor says will allow pay raises that will help retain existing cops. Cleveland City Council member this week spoke out against Israel's actions in Gaza, noting the council she serves on won't give a ceasefire resolution the dignity of a public discussion. And it's been one year since the toxic Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine. Worries remain as the president plans a visit. Joining me to talk about all of that and a whole lot more in studio, IdeaStream Public Media reporters Abby Marshall and Zaria Johnson. Morning. Good morning. Morning. Happy good, to be here. Good to have both of you here and happy Friday. And in Columbus, State House News Bureau Chief Karen Kassler. Hey, Karen. Hey, good morning. Good morning to you. We don't take calls on the Friday Roundtable, but please do send us your thoughts on any of our topics at soi at ideastream.org. So email it right there, soi at ideastream.org. You can find us on X, formerly Twitter, at Sound of Ideas. All right, let's get ready to Roundtable. At least two state lawmakers and Attorney General Dave Yost want Ohio to become the second state in the country to use nitrogen gas for executions after Alabama successfully executed an inmate using that method. Lethal injection, Ohio's current protocol, has had many problems, including a lack of availability of the needed drugs as drug makers object to its usage for capital punishment. The Alabama execution by nitrogen hypoxia, basically suffocation, took about 22 minutes. The state ruled it humane. Critics have called it cruel and experimental. Yost and the two Republican lawmakers who introduced the bill this week said on a press conference Monday they want to see executions resume in Ohio. The last time someone was put to death in the state was 2018. That was before Governor Mike DeWine took office. Karen, you reported on the bill, which would essentially give inmates a choice between lethal injection or nitrogen gas. Well, I got to give credit to my Statehouse News Bureau colleague, Sarah Donaldson, for actually putting the story out there first before I jumped in on it. Uh, this was th- th- this is uh, the whole point of this, according to the Republican sponsors, is to kickstart what they see as a stalled capital punishment system in Ohio and to add this option since Alabama was the first in the country to try it last week. And. According to state officials, it was successful, but then witnesses have said that the inmate, who was 58-year-old Kenneth Smith, uh, writhed and, and seemed to struggle for a couple of minutes. 
they said that was textbook. So this would give the option for inmates to choose either lethal injection or nitrogen gas, or if the lethal injection drugs still aren't available, which has been the claim all along. That's the reason uh, Governor Mike DeWine has said we're not having executions because you can't get those drugs. If those drugs aren't available, then nitrogen gas will be the option that will be chosen. We've heard some skepticism of that. Lou Tobin from the Prosecutors Association in the state said, I'm not sure the state's really trying that hard to get those drugs. Yeah, and when uh, Governor DeWine was asked by reporters a couple of days ago about exactly that and asked if he wanted to comment, he said no. Hmm. So this method, this nitrogen gas method, has been used exactly once. And as you mentioned, there are some witnesses who said there was evidence that there might have that this wasn't the smoothest thing in the world. I don't know what smooth executions are supposed to look like, but this one they claim was not. So after just one usage, Ohio is saying good enough for us? Yeah, and that's got some people who are concerned about the application of the death penalty in Ohio very worried. Uh, For instance, I talked to Gary Moore, who was the State Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections director under former Governor John Kasich. He oversaw 15 executions while he was in that office. He's now turned against the death penalty as an option because he says he's not entirely clear that we are executing the worst of the worst and that it's not evenly applied, essentially. He sees people who have sentences that appear to be just as bad as, uh, or crimes that just as bad as others, but the sentences are different. And so he's concerned about this method not bringing a peaceful end of life. And he said that's important. He feels that that's important, though there are certainly others. Uh, I, Sarah talked to Representative Phil Plummer, who's one of the sponsors of the bill, who said, hey, why are, why are liberals concerned about somebody twitching during an execution? What about the compassion for the person who was multiple stab victim or, or whoever was the victim of this person? So, you know, that I think is the struggle there. Is execution supposed to be a peaceful end of life where there is no struggle, or does it really matter? And Gary Moore, who supervised 15 executions under John Kasich, he was the head of prisons, he's not convinced. Right. Yeah, like I just said, uh, he was concerned about uh, the idea that this has only been used once, that Alabama is the only state that's tried this method of execution, and he's not real convinced that this is going to be a peaceful way to die. And right. he said it's not just for the the inmate, sure, but also for the witnesses, the family members who are there, and the execution team that actually has to perform the execution. He's very concerned about the impact. He says executions had a huge impact on him, still stays with him, and he's concerned about that too. Let me ask you about the the trend in Ohio, though, in recent years. We've been seeing more bipartisan support of getting rid of the death penalty here. This comes on the heels of that. But we, we have seen that certainly in uh, this year and in recent years. Yeah, there have been more Republicans who have joined on to this idea of abolishing the death penalty. I mean, uh, Senate Minority Leader Nikki Antonio has been proposing this every year she's been in the legislature, and quite often it didn't move past one hearing. But it's been moving forward a little bit because there has been more support. For instance, the current iteration of a bill to ban the death penalty has Gene Schmidt, who's a very conservative Republican representative from Southwest Ohio, on board. And so when you start 
start seeing those partnerships from people who are conservative who say, I'm pro-life and this is not pro-life to be executing people, and Democrats who've been saying, we don't like the death penalty at all. It's an interesting mix of people who probably don't agree on much beyond that. But whether this would go forward, I mean, these are the two bills that are out there. And when DeWine was asked to comment on the nitrogen gas bill, he said there are two bills out there. So he's not going to comment until things start to move. We should note, too, that the execution via nitrogen gas in Alabama happened after a botched lethal injection attempt earlier there. Yeah. And and Ohio's had its share of botched execution attempts as well. And so, you know, the idea of this being kind of an experimental way to put people to death for some opponents is real. And they're concerned that this is not the way to go about this, that this is a very serious, it's the most serious penalty that the justice system has. And to do it in a way that isn't solidly understood may be a problem for some. David in Cleveland Heights sends us an email and says perhaps they should administer confiscated street drugs laced with fentanyl. It'd be effective and could be a powerful message to kids and adults who want to avoid death but are using those drugs. The message would be really pro-life. Interesting, but you're right. That's not something that's way out there. That's come up actually before. That was proposed a couple years ago by uh, Representative Scott Wiggum, and uh, it got a lot of pushback as, oh, come on, are you serious? But certainly there are those who say, hey, this process needs to move forward. This is the state law that people who are receiving death sentences are supposed to be executed. Uh, So there's, you know, you could talk about firing squad and all these other ways. But another thing that Sarah reported just yesterday was that there are some opponents of the death penalty who are also concerned that Ohio passed a law last year, it took effect, that would ban vets, veterinarians, from using nitrogen gas to put animals to sleep, to put pets to sleep. And so is it okay to put people to death using a drug that veterinarians say they wouldn't use to put their pet, to put people's pets down? It, it's it's another discussion. I want to address one thing. You had a couple of comments about whether uh, my use of the word that this uh, execution was successful. I'm using that in the very basic sense of the word. Successful for an execution is that the uh, inmate was put to death. It was successful in that regard. As in other cases, there were botched attempts where inmates were brought into the death chamber and came out not dead because there was a, a, a mistake or a, or a problem with finding a vein or the various uh, different things. So this is not, uh, in my view, a description of the process of the death, which we've described here, of whether there were uh, some issues with it, whether people believe it was cruel or inhumane. The fact that I say successful means that the inmate was put to death. I just wanted to, to address that issue since we had a couple of comments on it. All right, let's move on to our next topic, and that's Cleveland City Council. It'll not accommodate protesters who have for three months called on the body to pass a resolution urging a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war and condemning what the protesters call Israel's genocide in Gaza. The issue has never been presented for discussion at council. Instead, council passed enhanced rules for its public meetings that could result in council recessing a raucous meeting, clearing the chambers, and returning with just media in attendance. At the end of that meeting this week, council member Rebecca Moore stood up and broke her silence, apologizing for taking so long to call for a ceasefire. Moore is the only Jewish member of the council. She called on she called Israel's actions under President Benjamin Netanyahu horrific. Abby, you were there. Council President Blaine Griffin spoke 
to people on both sides of the conflict. He said they must come together and agree on a fair, unbiased ceasefire resolution before the council can act. That means council won't act. Right. And this is something that I reported on last week pretty in depth and and I had talked about on Roundtable last week. But yes, Griffin has basically said, look, unless the Jewish community, the Palestinian community, the Muslim community can all get together and kind of come to an agreement on what a ceasefire resolution would look like, we're not we're not talking about it. And to me, it's a little unclear on what what both sides means, because I will note that the Jewish Voices for Peace comes. It's an activist group that comes every week to council and, and participates in these protests. Obviously, as you just mentioned, the only member of council, Rebecca Moore, spoke up for a ceasefire. Fire. So there are Jewish voices that are contributing to these pro-Palestinian protests. Uh, but yeah, I, I, this is a conflict that we know to be very, many people are passionate about. It has been very complicated for decades. Um, and it's unlikely that that is going to be solved or people are going to come to an agreement in Cleveland, Ohio. And Moore was basically saying, yes, I hear all of that. And I heard mm-hmm. the call for this bipartisan and, and everyone coming together mm-hmm. and doing this. But in the meanwhile, people are being killed. And we're talking about right. a humanitarian issue. We need a ceasefire. Right. And, and Rebecca Moore did put out a statement back in October after the Hamas attack on Israel calling for a ceasefire. And she just hadn't spoken about it in chambers. And this was the first week that she did do that. And it was kind of a break from her colleagues where she said, you know, this resolution clearly isn't coming to the table. And she turned to the protesters and said, I'm sorry it took me so long to talk about this. But the reason I was quiet was because I wanted to try to work with my colleagues to get this passed. But it's it's clear that it's not going to happen. So I just wanted to use what I have, which is my voice, to express what I believe. And that was met with pretty loud applause, standing ovations, that sort of thing from people that have been coming to chambers for months and just wanted that dignity of feeling like they were heard or seen by their elected officials. Not in chambers, but another council member has called for a ceasefire as well, Jenny Spencer. Jenny Spencer did put out a post calling for peace in the Middle East as well back in October. um, And they are really the only two people that have spoken about that publicly, aside from, you know, conversations I've had with Blaine Griffin on why they will not be proceeding with it. Have we heard anything from Mayor Bibb, whose standing with Israel tweet is pointed to by protesters as one of the motivating factors? Right. So, Mayor Bibb, back in October, after the Hamas attack on southern Israel that killed about 1,200 Israelis, put out a tweet saying, you know, I stand with the people of Israel. And that has been something that protesters really early on has nailed down as as a a problem that they have. And we haven't heard from him. um, No. Okay. Tell me about the protocols then. What Mm -hmm. what has council said it will do? By the way, we've talked about this before. The rules for public comment have been amended as well, and there was a lawsuit Mm -hmm. over those. Now we're talking about just rules for meetings. In the past, they've said you can't bring in signs. There are certain rules. Now those rules are a little bit more intense, but also there's a response if something uh, gets a little bit loud. Correct. So this is separate from the public comment rules that we've talked a a lot about with the lawsuit. This is about what happens when a public meeting is disrupted, because over the last few months, like I said, you've had these droves of protesters coming in talking at public comment, but the issue, President Blaine Griffin says, is when they start violating these council rules. They are bringing in signs, which is is banned. Um, They are uh, chanting and shouting, sometimes over council business. And and like we talked about last week, they had to adjourn the meeting early after they had passed legislation. So in response to that meeting last week, they implemented this six-step protocol of what would happen if these meetings are disrupted. It would begin with an overview of the rules, 
then a warning, then they would move to a recess where everyone in chambers would be cleared. Council goes to the committee room. Everyone leaves. People can start coming back in, but only council members and members of the media in-person attendance would actually be barred. But the meeting would proceed, as always, on TV3 and live streamed on their YouTube page. So it's still open to the public, but just in-person attendance would be barred for the remainder of that meeting. Okay. We'll obviously continue to be covering city council as you do each week. Uh, Other issues in Cleveland as well, you've been covering the budget. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb proposed eliminating unfilled police positions in his 2024 budget, taking the total number of officers from less than 1,500 last year to 1,350. He eliminated positions in last year's budget, too. And as of December, there were only 1,169 officers as the department Mm -hmm. has struggled to find new recruits amid the declining interest in policing nationwide. Bibb says he hopes eliminating the positions will help actually grow the division of police long term by offering better pay to retain existing officers and boost recruitment. This is the argument he made last Mm -hmm. year as well. And yet we lost a lot of ground this year. Right. And and so it is worth noting that they are saying that this will not affect the day-to-day operations because those positions are already unfilled. And to be honest, it's hard to see how we will get to even that 1350 number right. with the current rate. Last year, there was about 165 departures and only about 20 some new recruits that joined on. So they are not keeping up with the departures. So last year, uh, as part of this effort to kind of get more police officers to come, they implemented this historic pay raise. They bumped the pe- uh, pay from for cadets from $16 an hour to $24 an hour. Uh, and, and part of that pay raise, since that was something they committed to, I was told that if they had filled all these positions uh, under the current pay rate to, to the, the previous pay rate, it would be a difference of about $15 million. So those mm. cuts needed to come somewhere. Uh, and, and that's just, again, these are just the budgeted numbers. And it, it is unclear if they'll even meet that. So this is a long-term strategy. I've been told this is something that will take a while to attract people just so they stop hemorrhaging officers. In one sense, it, you would, it would make sense to cut those positions because they're going to be unfilled anyway. Mm-hmm. So why don't we get those off the books, use the money for something else? But there are those like Councilman Mike Palencic, who's the chair of the Council Safety Committee, who says it just sends the wrong message that we're going to have a shrunk, shrunken police force and it needs to be much bigger. Right. And this is something that Palencic has been sounding off on for some time now about the number of officers on the street and perceived safety for people, uh, residents and business owners. And this was something that he said this was presented to them yesterday morning, right before the budget estimate came out. And so it's something that President Blaine Griffin said that they will review in the upcoming budget hearings before it's approved. But it's a lot of people aren't happy about that. And Polenzik has said, you know, we have agreed to a lot of these things that uh, the Bibb administration has asked us for technology. We've done these partnerships with state and federal agencies. And where are the results? You know, where is this recruitment strategy that we're seeing? But the Bibb administration says we did pass these pay raises. We did change the age at which you can be a police officer. So they're saying they are doing those things. It's just going to take time to see those results. Also underway is a major shift in the way the officers are deployed, aimed in part at getting more officers on the street at any one time. Right. And so they are switching the unions as part of these contracts about pay. They also agreed to switch to two 12-hour shifts rather than three 8- to 10-hour shifts beginning uh, January 1st. All right. Let's take a real quick break here. Really appreciate the statewide view and that local view as well. We're going to come back in just a little bit and we're going to talk about a number of other stories, including a anniversary that is coming up tomorrow, believe it or not, a year since the toxic train derailment in East Palestine. This is the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. Stay tuned.
You're back with the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable from IdeaStream Public Media. I'm Mike McIntyre, joined this week by Statehouse News Bureau Chief Karen Kassler and IdeaStream reporters Abby Marshall and Zaria Johnson. A final thought on, or maybe not the final thought, but another thought on the nitrogen gas usage for the death penalty. This coming from Susan said, Dave Yost claims to be pro-life. How does he choose to end a life if he claims that God should decide who lives when unborn, who dies uh, here? So who decides who dies here? So that's uh, Susan's point of view. Again, we take your thoughts throughout the program, soi at ideastream.org. If we don't use them today, perhaps it'll be part of a last word uh, segment sometime in the near future. Let's move on now to another story. Tomorrow marks one year since a toxic train derailment in East Palestine, a year of investigations, government-monitored cleanup, and continued suspicion in that small community where residents worry about long-term health impacts. President Joe Biden, who hasn't yet visited the site, plans to be there sometime this month. He had sent Pete Buttigieg, his transportation secretary, uh, earlier near the time of the disaster. A bipartisan railroad safety bill co-sponsored by Senator Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance, both of those Ohio senators, has not made it to the floor for a vote. Brown this week blamed the railroad lobby. Zaria, the White House issued an executive order to protect the people of East Palestine. W- what does that entail? And it was just recent. Yeah, it entails a couple different things. But first, it requires um, a FEMA representative. Uh, that's the Federal Agent Emergency Management Agency to appoint a federal disaster recovery coordinator who's going to oversee long-term recovery efforts and look for any unmet needs in East Palestine that might be eligible for federal assistance. Um, it also requires the EPA and the Health Human Services Administration to both submit their their own reports to the president with updates on cleanup efforts for and air, soil, and water monitoring data from the EPA and public health testing data from the Health, Ser- health and Human Services Administration. Um, the Department of Transportation has to provide their own report to President Biden with details of actions taken in response to the derailment. And after the National Transportation National Transportation Safety Board investigation, the DOT has to also provide a list of follow-up actions that they need to um, engage in in the community. So a lot planned, a lot has already happened in this year, a lot of cleanup that has happened. Mm -hmm. You've done some reporting on that. Cleanup of soil is essentially over, but yes. there are still problem areas in streams. And as I understand it, it's it's the stuff that's sedimentary in the streams. Exactly. Yeah. Ann Vogel, the director of the Ohio EPA, she said that um, the contaminated soil was removed back in October. But when it comes to those waterways, there's still some limited contamination in Leslie Run and Sulphur Run. Those are two creeks in East Palestine. And like you said, they're mainly finding that um, trapped under rocks or within sediment at the bottom of those creeks. So um, crews are using using um, aeration to disturb that sediment, to expose the contamination to air, um, and they're saying that that'll allow it to dissipate in the air. Um, but Ann Vogel did say that um, what remains in those creeks aren't posing any um, risk to the community. It's not, you know, getting into groundwater or well water or, or anything like that. Um, and they're going to continue to monitor air in East Palestine along with um, the groundwater as well. They're monitoring air, but Case Western Reserve University is studying the air yes. as well. What is, what is their goal? Yeah, they're looking for links um, between uh, potential air pollution in East Palestine and uh, different diseases. Um, They're working with residents in East Palestine and across the Pennsylvania border to um, hear their experiences and their concerns, their symptoms even. And they um, collected, from those who signed up, they collected biological samples like saliva, hair, strands of hair, fingernail clippings, things like that. And they're going to be using that to first get their baseline data. What does does their DNA and their symptoms look like now? And they're going to be looking for, over time, um, signs of DNA damage that might um, show links to 
different types of cancer, different types of uh, cardiovascular disease. Um, and the lead re researcher, Fred Schumacher, he said that um, it's not predictive. It's not uh, you're going to get this um, illness in the future. It's more so um, going to allow them to find connections and figure out how exactly these chemicals um, react to our bodies and how we react to them. Karen, what's going on at the state level with uh, the governor, with, uh, with uh, Senator Brown? We're, uh, now that we have this one-year anniversary, where are we? Well, I talked to both of them about this this week. And like you said in the beginning, Sherrod Brown, who's a sponsor, a co-sponsor of this bipartisan bill that would do a lot to regulate the rail companies, he's blaming the rail lobby and saying that people hadn't heard much about the safety record of specifically Nor Great uh, Norfolk Southern until what happened. And remember, this was national news. I mean, th there was a lot of amazement at some of the pictures that were coming out of East Palestine and especially the burn off of the chemicals and, and the, the cloud that that generated. And so he's really saying that this needs to go forward. And so is Governor Mike DeWine, who probably doesn't agree with Sherrod Brown on much. But on this, he says the state can't do anything to regulate the railroads like the federal government can. I mean, the state did try in the transport transportation budget to do some things. But really, this is a federal issue because these trains cross different state lines. And he also noted that Norfolk Southern is going to establish a training center in East Palestine, which he says is going to be a great opportunity for especially volunteers who are probably going to be called to sites like this. I heard a story this morning on national NPR from the Allegheny Front, uh, Julie Grant doing the reporting, saying that there are residents there who want to have a health registry in the same way that there was a health registry in New York City after 9-11, so that people could note what their illness are there could be research on that there there is still a lot of concern in East Palestine Karen from people who are living there even though they're being told by the EPA that cleanup has happened that whatever's in the streams won't affect you uh, there's a lot of concern and a lot more they want to see done Absolutely. And I think this is a long-term process. I think the concern started early on and there was a feeling that they weren't getting all the information that they wanted. I mean, there, it wasn't known what was on that train, really. I mean, these residents were watching these trains go through and people didn't know what was on those trains. And there have been derailments. There was a derailment like a week or two after East Palestine. I mean, there's a real question about what these trains are carrying. They're, they're long. There's they, they there's a lot of concern about the tracks and whether the tracks are safe, whether the crew is appropriately sized. All these things are going to be part of that. And I think this is going to go on for a while. Yeah. And whether the contamination that happened will continue to be deleterious long term. So we'll keep an eye on that. By the way, Julie Grant, along with our Abigail Botar, will be on the Sound of Ideas Monday to talk a little bit more. Abigail is going to be in East Palestine tomorrow, the anniversary time. So we'll have more reporting. Part of the reporting that she's done uh, Zaria has been talking to residents there in the year since the concerns that they have. Many of them, as I mentioned, are still concerned about safety concerns, health concerns. Many of them had moved out for five, six months at a time, some even longer. But there's also businesses there that are trying to get out from under the toxic label. Imagine if you're a greenhouse in East Palestine trying to sell your product and uh, people are like, is this contaminated? Right. So there's there's that part, too. And as I understand it, Norfolk Southern is fitting, footing the bill for a million dollars in a marketing campaign for the town. Yeah, like you mentioned, um, there have been reports from East Palestine businesses and even businesses outside of East Palestine that are experiencing a loss in customers due to customers being concerned that 
some sort of their product might be toxic or contaminated. The, the community is having a hard time shaking that toxic label. Um, but Norfolk Southern, like you said, they are committing that one million dollars to for a five year marketing campaign to kind of help shift that narrative in the community. Um, since since the derailment. And in addition to that, Norfolk Southern also committed, I think it was $25 million for that training facility, like Karen mentioned, and another $25 million for the community's park. And there they're planning to um, fund new playgrounds, a pool, an, amp- an amphitheater, and a p- pickleball courts. Um, so You said that questioningly. I don't play pickleball, but, <laughs> Nor you know, do I. if it's good for the community, it's good for the it's community. It's a big thing, man. That's what I've been hearing. I'm like, maybe, I don't know, community uh, work day or something. Very good. Good idea. Hey, let's talk about other things that you've been covering. One of them is uh, Brandywine cleanup. Thousands of gallons of diesel fuel spilled into Summit County Saturday into the Brandywine Creek after mm-hmm. a tanker truck overturned on Ohio Route 8. Caught fire. Uh, the crash killed a 31-year-old driver. Some of the spill poured into the creek. The EPA in Ohio has been leading the cleanup effort, and Director Ann Vogel said drinking water won't be affected mm-hmm. by the contamination. You reported on that this week. Uh, the cleanup involved what's called a floating boom. Tell me about that. Yeah, so the floating boom is essentially this like long floating barrier that helps keep the oil contained so it to prevent it from spreading downstream. And this is really important um, in the case of Brandywine Creek because the creek connects to the Cuyahoga River, which here in Cleveland experienced its own run-in with diesel fuel last week. Um, so definitely right. didn't want to... That was the Sherwin-Williams. Yeah, part. exactly. So didn't want to have that spread and spread that issue elsewhere. Um, and just to clarify, Director Ann Vogel with the Ohio EPA said that due to the explosion and the the spill into the creek, it's it's unclear how much diesel fuel actually ended up in Brandywine. Um, but they used that floating boom to uh, contain it, it while, so that crews can actually get in there and continue those cleanup efforts. Okay. And if you can't, uh, if you didn't know that, and I might not have mentioned it before, uh, Zaria concentrates on environmental coverage here, and now we see why yes. uh, at IdeaStream. Uh, Moving on, Baldwin-Wallace University is feeling the financial strain that many colleges are experiencing. The private university in Berea announced yesterday it's laying off 23 staff members, including full and part-time staff and non-tenured faculty members. There's a hiring freeze until December, and academic programs will be affected. Abby, tell me about the reorganization of programs under this plan. Yeah, so they say they're planning to reorganize 13 programs, which will include no longer admitting students into some majors and merging others. They're going to get rid of some bachelor degrees, such as in in subjects like French and German, and the Master of Education program for superintendent licensure will also be cut. Current students, though, will be able to finish their degrees. The money woes appear to be significant. The university had said last year, the reporting was the $3 million deficit they thought they mm-hmm. were facing. Cleveland Scene reported it was closer to $20 million. Yeah, that's a pretty sizable difference. It's a uh, big difference. Uh, they say that it, this is happening, as many universities will test to, due to rising costs, as well as decreased revenue from enrollment, things like that. So they're trying to figure out how they could basically fly so blindly for so long, and they're going to have to figure out where this money needs to come from to fill that deficit. Baldwin Wallace is not alone. All of the higher education institutions, many of them, mm-hmm. have talked about difficulties as enrollment declines, the pool of students is lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are they able to compete? And another one of those in Northeast Ohio is Notre Dame College, which we've uh, we've reported, and by we, I mean Connor Morris, our education reporter, has reported on extensively. And now, as it's struggling mightily financially, it has had talks with Cleveland State University about the public university possibly mm-hmm. absorbing the South Euclid Institution. 
education. Right. And again, the same concerns that we've heard about low enrollment, growing costs. So apparently CSU has had several preliminary meetings with Notre Dame College and Signal Cleveland actually first reported that three of those conversations took place last fall. Right. Amy Morona had that story and then our Connor um, uh, went after it as well. But certainly Notre Dame College, there are a number of other small colleges, Lake Erie, Ursuline, there's many that you could think of. uh, And you wonder how they're weathering these storms, some better than others, but this uh, is affecting pretty much all of higher education. Correct. Yeah. I even remember back when I was at OU, there were, were these sorts of things happening. So it'll be really interesting to see how the landscape of higher ed shifts in the coming years. Do you still have to say, oh, yeah, when you say, oh, you? Oh, you, oh, yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, (laughs) A statewide task force charged with examining school bus safety issued 17 recommendations this week. Not among them is a call for seatbelts, which are required in passenger automobiles. They recommended increasing bus visibility, more training for bus drivers, increased penalties for other drivers who break laws designed to protect buses. But, Karen, no call for seatbelts. Why? Well, I think the cost was a real concern. I mean, we're talking about millions, tens of millions of dollars potentially to retrofit existing buses with seatbelts. But a huge percentage of the actual bus drivers said that they did not want seatbelts on their buses. I mean, it was like 81% of the school bus drivers said they didn't want those seatbelts to be mandatory on their vehicles. And I think the concern about that is because then bus drivers would have to be responsible for making sure the kids use them, that they aren't, you know, hitting each other with them or they get out of them when there is a situation, if there is one. And and so I think now the focus has shifted to allowing local communities to do what they want to do, but local school districts to do what they want to do. And pay for it. Yeah, there are grant program. Apparently there's a grant program that's going to be available that will help school districts decide how they want to deal with school buses and and safety. I mean, you know, school buses travel millions of miles every day in Ohio. And so to treat each and every district the same and require the same for each school district is probably going to be difficult. And and that's, I think, was one of the or one of the acknowledgments here is there's a big difference when you're driving a school bus in southern Ohio versus driving a school bus in an urban environment. Uh-huh. So but, but, this, yeah. yeah. But let me ask you, is it different sure. if I'm driving a car in Southern Ohio or in Northern Ohio? Either way, I'm dinged if I don't wear a seatbelt because it's state law. Absolutely. And and that's, that's a great point. And I, I think the concern here, though, is how do you make sure that the retrofit would work and the kids all wear them? And would that guarantee safety for the children and you know these these crashes are terrible and they're tragic but certainly the recommendations here did not include that for a variety of reasons they did include a couple of other things though Um, they did talk about uh, you know some some more training for school bus drivers and again that that program that needs-based program to help districts decide what they want to do one more thing about seatbelts the governor assembled this 15-member task force last year after a bus crashed in Clark County 11-year-old boy was fatally ejected from the school bus. More than 20 others were seriously injured. And what we're hearing on the other end of this is, is one of the reasons, and you mentioned cost and, the, and, and drivers having to enforce it. But one of the things we heard, particularly from the driver in that case, was um, they're worried kids would be trapped in a bus and they'd have to go cut them out of a seatbelt. Again, I'm trying to understand the difference between that and the requirement that you wear a seatbelt in a car. You'd be trapped in a seatbelt there conceivably as well. It would certainly uh, keep someone from being objected. 
Yeah, and I think that's kind of where the terrain and the vehicles actually differ a little bit because school buses are much bigger. They carry a lot more people than obviously your car does. But yeah, the question about how if we're required to wear a seatbelt because that will help protect us in accidents, well, that's that's a real concern here. But the cost is, is I think, one of the biggest issues. Uh, there was There would be a lot of money involved in, in updating those school buses. All right. Let's move to Akron. The newest member of city council there won't need directions to City Hall. Samuel DeShazier is a former top business and economic development official for the city. He fills the vacancy made when council member Nancy Holland abruptly resigned last month. Abby, it was a unanimous vote, but 15 people applied for that Ward 1 seat. Right, and I think that what he had going for him, like you said, is he has had experience working for the city for 17 years in roles like deputy mayor for economic development and director of business retention and expansion under the pre previous administration of Mayor Dan Horrigan. He left that city job at the end of last year when the new mayor, Shamas Malik, took office. And he hopes to get more people involved in local government. Yeah, and, and he references the fact that the neighborhoods that he will will be serving, Highland Square, which was my old neighborhood when I used to live in Akron and cover Akron, uh, shout out, West Hill and parts of Merriman Valley are are ethnically and racially diverse and he is a black man so he's saying he wants to be representative of the areas that he serves in and wants to get people more engaged in local government and we still haven't heard specifically from holland about why she left i know that our mm-hmm. um uh that we have been trying to get in touch with uh, with her and have not been successful right and, and it is interesting because holland really wasn't on council for that long she was first appointed in june 2021 to fill the seat of rich swirsky who passed away while he was serving in that role. And then she was elected by voters to continue to fill that role in November 2022. So it's only been just over two years that she's served that ward. All right. More Akron news about the schools uh, in just a moment, right after we take a very quick break, our final break of the show. It's the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. Glad you're with us. Stay tuned. You're back with the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable from Ideastream Public Media. I'm here with Karen Kassler, Abby Marshall, and Zaria Johnson. I'm Mike McIntyre. So glad to have you with us. The Akron School Board was uh, was accused by the teachers union of breaking open meetings laws in the awarding of a state grant funded tutoring contract. The contract in dispute was canceled yesterday. The union called it an effort to outsource their jobs to, quote, remote strangers, end quote. The union had filed a grievance with the school district, a lawsuit over the meeting in Summit County Common Pleas Court, and an unfair labor practice claim with the State Employment Relations Board. Abby, this was $156,000 in state money the district said would help students, but the teachers were not convinced, and the district said it reluctantly had to cancel. Right, right. they said it would have provided 2,400 one-on-one sessions with students, and the district said that they were willing to give priority to Akron school teachers for those roles. But the the teachers basically said, you know, this is cause for concern. We're outsourcing our jobs. What is this going to do in the future about potentially other school jobs that might be deemed unnecessary? And so, yeah, they reluctantly gave up this contract because there was a deadline attached. Uh, The the company said that they needed to move forward or not by February 1st. Otherwise, the tutoring 
seats needed to be used by another district. It's emblematic of a growing rift between the teachers and the district. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the union actually says that they, regardless of this contract being canceled, they are proceeding with their grievance, their lawsuit and unfair labor practices because the union president says it should have never happened in the first place. Okay. Connor will be on that story as well. Another public meetings issue, the Avon Lake Board of Education got schooled by uh, on open meetings this week uh, by a, a lawsuit and it was forced to settle with a resident after the board met in Columbus while attending a conference. The board will pay the legal fees of the resident who sued, will invalidate all of the actions it took at the meeting November 12th. The school district says it does not agree it did anything wrong, but wanted to avoid litigation. It's pretty clear by the settlement something wasn't right, Abby. Correct. And yet, so the board will have to pay close to $11,000 and pay for court costs. Other agreements for this include things like having to require all board meetings be held in Avon Lake, barring extraordinary circumstances, and that the board needs to maintain and post all of their minutes on their website within 48 hours of approval. Yeah. Also, all the board members and the treasurer will undergo training about open meetings. So uh, important, really, for all public officials to know what those open meetings laws are and what the reason is. Do it out in the open open so that the public can see you build trust. Right. And as journalists, we will keep an eye on that. Indeed. A couple of election endorsements to mention. First, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost has endorsed former Cleveland area car dealer Bernie Moreno in the Republican primary race for U.S. Senate. He said Moreno has a proven, uh, he is a proven conservative who can unite the party and defeat Sherrod Brown. The other Republican candidates are Secretary of State Frank LaRose and State Senator Matt Dolan. Karen Yost passed on backing LaRose, who ran on the same statewide ticket as Yost in 2018. Is that surprising or was that expected? I think we're going to start seeing more of these endorsements tipping toward Marino because the big one did. Of course, former President Trump endorsed Marino. And I think there's a feeling among some that there's an inevitability here. But certainly the election is not over. It's not over until March 19th. And so, you know, LaRose is out there campaigning. Matt Dolan's out there campaigning. Uh, When Governor DeWine was asked if he's going to endorse, he said that uh, these three gentlemen are, they would all are very good candidates. They would all make very good U.S. senators. So it sounds like he's not going to get into it. But his endorsement, because uh, former President Trump smacked DeWine down over the veto of House Bill 68, the one on uh, trans youth, uh, I don't know that DeWine's endorsement will mean a lot. So maybe he won't endorse it all. Moving to Cuyahoga, Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb and Congressperson Chantel Brown and Cleveland City Council members have endorsed incumbent Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Michael O'Malley in the Democratic primary against challenger Matthew Ahn, a former public defender and law professor at Cleveland State. Interesting about this, mm-hmm. uh, Abby, is that the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party failed to endorse in this race, which was unusual. Usually they go ahead and, and endorse an incumbent. But here are some pretty high-level Democrats that are saying, yeah, this is the guy we're backing. Yeah, and this is a big deal because of that. And, and Bibb and Brown are, are some of the highest profile elected leaders in the, in the region. And as you mentioned, the, the Democratic Party did not endorse him. Uh, they are tending to lean more progressive. But Bibb and Brown both say that they're endorsing him as an incumbent because the county needs continuity right now in the prosecutor's office, especially as the area works to deal with violent crime, which, as we know, has been a top priority for Mayor Justin Bibb. The ACLU of Ohio said it's getting ready to sue the state to try to stop House Bill 68 from going into effect on April 23rd. The bill, which limits health care for, actually bans health care, uh, 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 what we call gender-affirming health care for trans kids, 
and bans trans athletes from competing in girls' sports was vetoed by Governor DeWine but was overridden by the legislature last, no- last month. Karen, uh, what does the ACLU say about this? How, is, how are they? It's interesting. There's a certain law that Republicans actually backed uh, in the past that they're using in order to push this lawsuit. There was a constitutional amendment that was passed in 2011 that would, that it was basically called the Health Care Freedom Amendment, and it would say that people are entitled and they have the constitutional right to choose their own health care issues and, and make their own health care decisions. It was aimed at Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. And it was passed by Republicans and, and really championed by Republicans and libertarians in particular. And so that's what the ACLU is citing here, that this care is care that parents say that their children should receive because parents make health care decisions for their minor children. And so that's what they're putting out there. Since it prohibits the purchase and sale of necessary health care, this law would, they say that that violates the Constitution. The bill's sponsor, Republican lawmaker Gary Click, a uh, Republican lawmaker there, says that the impending lawsuit lacks merit. He basically said it's the ACLU trying to, you know, make up stuff like they always do. That's well, other states, viewpoint. yeah, and, and we've seen, while he has cited that uh, there are states that laws like this have been upheld, there are other courts that have not upheld these laws. So these are the kind of laws that are working their way through the court system. And it should be noted that the ACLU hasn't filed the lawsuit yet, but has said that it's coming. And what I've been hearing is that they're looking for a plaintiff to be kind of at the head of it. So we're still waiting. They've got 90 days from when the House and Senate overrode the veto. So it takes effect sometime in April. One of the things I love about the conversation on this show is it's not linear. Sometimes we dip back. So we're going to do that with a note from Jason in Cleveland about seatbelts on school buses. Here's his point of view. Seatbelts are more a detriment than a boon on school buses. It only takes one minute for a school bus to fill up with smoke or fire. One driver alone cannot make sure 40 to 50 kids are off the bus in emergencies. More school buses catch fire than overturn. Also, Ohio already has the strictest program for bus training. I speak on this as a bus driver myself. So that's Jason's point of view, and I really appreciate your thoughts on that and your experience on it, Jason. Moving on from a former state rep who wants to return to a current state rep who is now leaving, uh, State Representative Dave Dobos, a Columbus Republican, has withdrawn from his election bid. He didn't say why, but he had been found to be lying about having earned a degree from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He also uh, attended this. He did attend the school in three separate stints in the 70s and 80s, never graduated. Karen, he came under criticism for not disclosing more than a million dollars in debt. Yeah, and he's been in office for one term and has decided not to seek a second term. He did tell one outlet uh, here in Columbus that he's his desire to not return is because he wants to spend more time managing his business, which does standardized testing preparation. And uh, I think there's another thing to note here. He didn't have a challenger when he ran in 2022. He has two challengers this time. And this is a district that leans Democratic. So I think maybe that might have played a role here. But uh, yeah, the whole issue of the uh, MIT claims. Um, MIT said he did attend, but there were no degrees conferred. So, yeah. And you might not have understood my introduction because I read these out of order because I said from a former state rep who wants to return. You don't know anything about that. So now you do. You do, Karen. But now our listeners will. If you have a felony conviction in Ohio, you can't run for office unless you're a state lawmaker. The House Supreme Court ruled this week that Sandusky Republican Steve Krause, the former state lawmaker who wants to become a state lawmaker again, was convicted of theft in 2015, that he can run even though Ohio law says that felons cannot. 
Yeah, that's an interesting decision. And uh, the court's opinion said that since lawmakers act as a whole in exercising authority, then each state representative is one of 99 members of the assembly. And uh, one felony would disqualify a member from ever running for that for for office. But uh, his attorney had argued that he could run again because his case was sealed. The justices didn't actually get into that. But this is really interesting. He is running against a current state representative, DJ Swearingen, from Huron. And this is a Republican-leaning district. And so it's it's a former state rep uh, against a current state rep. And it's interesting because the state law says that the ban applies to public officials that involve substantial management or control over the property of a state agency, political subdivision, or private entities. What they're basically arguing is that state representatives don't have substantial management over anything. Right. They're one of 99 and uh, one of 132 in the entire legislature. So, yeah, they said that they, he just doesn't have that kind of power to involve substantial management management or control over the property of a state agency, which is which, it's interesting. All right, let's get to our most important story of the day. Elmo made headlines this week, and I'm talking about our red furry friend from Sesame Street. You can see that on WVIZ PBS. He asked people on social media how they were doing. Not that well, thanks. The post opened a floodgate of responses with messages like, Elmo, we are tired, and Elmo, I just got laid off. It also launched dozens of news stories with headlines like, Elmo breaks the internet, and Elmo's viral tweet sparks existential crisis. Abby, anything you need to tell Elmo? How much time you got, Elmo? <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me, though, uh, of, of what we saw with the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District uh, around holiday time when they kind of basically said, lay it out there, and people really responded. But it seems like we're, we're tapping a vein here. People have got a lot of issues to talk about. Yeah, I mean, sounds like people are struggling. We went through a global pandemic. Remember that? Not too long ago. Right. Uh, inflation, housing crisis. I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Elmo <laughs> making national headlines. So do check that out if you want to uh, Google that, uh, take a look. And of course, you got to watch Sesame Street. <laughs> to end our show, we're celebrating two big events today. First, Groundhog Day, the day when we ask a rodent to predict the weather. Predict the weather. And today, Punxsutawney Phil did not see his shadow, meaning there will be an early spring and not six more weeks of winter. Buckeye Chuck, who lives at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History and is actually named Murray, concurs. Uh, all of that is if you believe a rodent can predict the weather, which they can't. Your fallible TV weatherman is more accurate, according to StormFacts Weather Almanac. Although Phil has been right uh, in that case only 39% of the time since 1887. So oh. I know you were all excited today when you said, Xaria, uh, when you said um, winter is uh, only going to be a short time longer, but he's not always right. Yeah, I don't know. I think we can trust him this time. I'm thinking about, you know, climate experts and this whole uh, thing with climate change. I don't know if you've heard about that. I um, heard that. <laughs> um, but they're saying a lot of experts are saying we can get used to warmer w winters. We can expect warmer winters. So um, the ground, the rodents might be right more. more they than might. They and usually. today I came into work just wearing a sport coat and feeling perfectly fine. If this is winter, give me more of it. Yeah, let's merge those two stories. You know, the meme of Elmo burning. That's, yeah, that's really <laughs> <what this> is. <laughs> that's horrible. All right. Hey, the second big to do we're celebrating today is the birthday of roundtable coordinating producer Lee Barr, who had nothing to do with this week's production because she finally took a whole week off. Happy birthday to Lee. We hope you're having a great day, or better yet, hope you're not even listening. And I know, Karen, <laughs> you rely on her every week just to get us Lee ready. Is 
She is the best, and she deserves everything, especially a week off. So I'm uh, happy birthday, Lee. For sure. And our music to close out today's show, a surprising choice inspired by Groundhog Day, the 1993 movie, not the holiday. Every morning, Phil Connors, played by Bill Murray, woke up to the loving words of Sonny and Cher. Feel free to smash your clock radios right now, people. They say we're young and we don't know. To get the last word on today's topic, send an email, soi at ideastream.org, or on X at Sound of Ideas. Find me on X at Michael McIntyre. Monday on the Sound of Ideas, we'll discuss the year since the East Palestine train derailment, hearing from impacted residents and Ideastream's Abigail Botar. If you miss any part of the program, find us online or listen to the Sound of Ideas podcast, which you can find on any podcast app. You can also hear a rebroadcast tonight at 9 on 89.7 WKSU. And check out the television version, Ideas, tonight at 7.30 on WVIZ-PBS. I'll see you there. I'm Mike McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. I got flowers in the spring. I got to wear my ring.